I was just a young, unthinking teenager when I first started reading Spider-Man. But the years have a way of slipping by, of changing the world about us. And every boy, sooner or later, must put away his toys and become a man. But until then, welcome back to the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 1962, last Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavasen, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Mark, we're back! I'm back! I'm back! I'm back! And you're back! All right, well, thanks for joining us for the first ever episode of the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comics universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yep, you see, Mark and I have been collecting Spider-Man comics our entire lives and eventually completed both of our chases of collecting every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And for the past five years, we've been discussing everything Spider-Man related with each other, Spider-Man's various creators, and with you, our listeners. Our podcast, the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, of course, it can be found on iTunes, YouTube, Google Play, and Stitcher for your listening enjoyment. And as with any other beginning, I want to welcome all the new listeners who've never tuned into a show before to are tuning in for the first time to this episode. So I wanted to say welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you consider sticking with us on our journey. Yes, Dan, the Amazing Spider Talk has always been about you and I talking passionately about the past, present, and future of Spider-Man. And, of course, that's what we're going to do today. Because uh, in this, the season premiere of a second season of our show, we're going to be talking about how Spider-Man finally hit the big time. No, we're not jumping all the way to the Dan Slott era of Spider-Man. Just to <laughs> clear up any confusion. No, no. Instead, we're going to be talking about the Stanley John Romita Sr. run on Amazing Spider-Man, as well as all of the other amazing television shows, toys, Spider-Man merchandise, lunchboxes, whatever. Uh, I, I think they were like race cars with Spider-Man on them. I mean, whatever you could put his face on. That were inspired by Spider-Man's newfound popularity in the 1960s. Yeah, and that means we're going to be covering everything from Amazing Spider-Man number 39 to issue number 100. That big, bold 100 issue in this season. Which uh, you can find uh, just about anywhere from your local comic book store. Where we, which is, I guess, our preference, right, Mark? Absolutely. You can also find them online pretty much anywhere from Marvel's Unlimited platform to Comixology if you want. So whether you've read these issues a million times or really never at all, we hope you enjoy our very first episode entitled, I'm So Pretty. Oh, so pretty. So when you came on board Amazing Spider-Man, you took over for Steve Ditko. You took over for Ditko, who had really created a very idiosyncratic, very unique style of Spider-Man. First few issues, you managed a gradual transition in the art style. It was hard. 
but eventually you found your way. And your Spider-Man is very different from, from Ditko's. How would you describe the difference between what Steve did and what, what you did with Peter Parker and with Spider-Man and everyone else? Well, some of it was technique because he, I was a brush man. When I used to do the, the romances, I, I worked with a brush. And I could get some nice thick and thin accents and good clothing textures and things like that. Ditko was a penman. And I was I felt obliged to do Spider-Man and nine panels like Ditko because that's what the fans are used to. And I tried for the first year to use a pen, which was hard for me. To, I, I lost my, my flair. Uh, but I tried it. And I think maybe in the beginning of the second year, I started to cheat and use a brush a little bit more. And you could see... My stuff was somewhat did, did go like for, for six or seven months, but slowly but surely I had to put some, some brush technique in there for, for weight. And it's slowly but surely Stan said, you know what, don't try anymore. Do it the way you want to do it. All right, Dan, so before we uh, get into the meat and potatoes of our show, which is going to include a really special guest, we should talk a little bit about kind of who is going to be at the, the focal point of a lot of the season. I mean, we've talked we talked a lot about Stan Lee in the first season of our show, kind of vis-a-vis him and Steve Ditko. But now we have John Ramita Sr. entering the, the mix here. I mean, he is the an artist extraordinaire. Uh, he took over for Dicko on Amazing Spider-Man on issue number 39. One of the things that I always thought was funny was uh, Ramita said in countless other interviews that he always thought it was going to be a short-term gig because he was convinced that Lee and Dicko were going to re- reconcile their differences. He had no idea how irreparable things were and how Dicko had just pieced out. Um, <laughs> so because of that, if you look at the first few issues, mainly that two-parter that he did – uh, with the Green Goblin, where the Goblin unmasked Peter, and then Peter unmasked the Goblin, and it's Norman Osborn. Uh, Ramita says outright he was he was aping Ditko. He was he was like I I didn't want to change the style, the visual tone of the book all that much because Ditko was going to come back and everyone would have been really ticked off about it. But he didn't so, do the best job of that. It's it is undeniably Ramita. Yeah, I mean the the, the difference is is very apparent. Um, Right, right from Jump Street, um, but uh, the, the, you could still tell there's there's an uncertainty in in his pencils versus what he would end up doing just a handful of issues later. At least, or at least from my perspective, I mean, it's certainly different, but it got even more different. I guess is what what we're gonna say. Yeah, yeah, you're um, not kidding. Ramita wasn't a total stranger to Spider-Man, though. Um, interestingly enough, you know, Stanley clearly. Uh, was getting the sense over the mid, you know, during the mid '60s that that Dicko was not long for Marvel. Uh, so uh, Ramita, who is who is penciling Daredevil, and for issue number sixteen in Daredevil, Lee pitched to Ramita to do a Spider-Man story, and Ramita learned after the fact that this was basically a tryout for him so um there you go i mean that's that's and it wasn't that an answer to a question that you got dan that got you an inner uh, uh autograph from ramita that's exactly right yeah that was one of the questions what was his first time drawing spider-man in a marvel comic book yeah obviously a fact that dan will never forget because you know he got that great signature on Spider-Man No More, I believe, Amazing Spider-Man number 50. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's it's also worth noting even before Daredevil, I mean, Romita was not a newbie to the world of comics. Um, you know, his, his claim to fame, though, wasn't superhero books. He, he did romance comics uh, for DC uh, during uh, the 50s. And you can even tell. Bef- yes, obviously. <laughs> and we'll get into how you can tell. Um, and even before he he joined Marvel officially, apparently he had worked for Marvel and, or, or Timely Comics, depending on the name of the label at that point, for Stan Lee, but but not not in an official capacity. He, he there were apparently a couple of artists um, that were not very good at making deadlines, <laughs> and they went to Ramita to go to ghost their pages, and and when Ramita finally left dc and and 
decided he wanted to get back into comics again when Marvel was kind of um, juicing up its superhero line. He went into Marvel's offices and they were like, kind of like, oh, who are you? He's like, oh, you've worked with me before and showed him all the pages that he had ghosted for these other people. <laughs> um, and, and, and lo and behold, he got hired right away. You know, that kind of started the relationship there. And, and, and Ramita just, he, he became a part of the framework right away. I mean, he was kind of everything, I guess, that Dicko and also Jack Kirby was not in terms of um, getting along with Stan Lee and, and, and being a company guy. And, and he was rewarded as such because when, when Stan Lee uh, eventually went on, uh, went on to become publisher of Marvel, um, Ramita was named art director. So this was kind of after his run on Amazing Spider-Man. And, and while he was an art director, um, I mean, it, he, Ramita had a hand in designs of characters like the Punisher, Wolverine, Luke Cage, Bullseye. So, I mean, like the, the, the influence is just absolutely profound that this guy's had in terms of his style, the character creations, just his overall management style. So, not to mention his son. And then, of course, his son, he spawns great artists, uh, <laughs> John Romita Jr., J.R.J.R. So, um, again, like, we, we're, we're just, Romita's impact is just profound, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about a lot this season. I mean, we're going to be talking about more than just Romita. I mean, it's kind of that era of, like, 65, 66 to 70, um, but... I think, uh, Dan, rather than just having people hear us gush about how great John Romita is, um, we should bring in our, our first guest uh, of the season to talk about him. Uh, he, he, he's he's a, a newbie to the show. No, <laughs> this is this is his, actually his fourth time joining us on Amazing Spider Talk. This is uh, Jerry Conway, who, um, in addition to being a great writer on Spider-Man from both the 70s, he, he was Stan Lee's first replacement on Amazing Spider-Man, but he also uh, came back in the 90s. He worked uh, closely with Romita. Ramita, during that era where Ramita was art director, uh, Ramita illustrated issues of Spider-Man with him. So I, I don't think anyone quite knows Ramita as well, who would come on a show as Jerry Conway. So, uh, <laughs> Jerry, welcome aboard. Hi, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. Anytime. Well, 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 Jerry. As as you just heard, you know we're we're really excited here in this in this season. Here we're going to be talking about you know the John Romita Stan Lee uh, run on Amazing Spider Man and some of the adjacent properties that kind of sprung forth from that in the late sixties and early seventies. Um, we when we've talked to you in the past, Jerry, you've mentioned that you know prior to you joining the book in um, you know Amazing Spider Man for the first time in the nineteen seventies. I mean, you were a fan of the character. I think you've talked about like the Crymaster arc with the the Dicko sure. Lee one as being an early influence for you. Certainly, some of the the, the street level stories that you ended up doing on the book. But um, obviously, I, I'm going to make the assumption that you were following the book as it transitioned from Dicko to Ramita. And you know, we, we we have obviously the power of hindsight here to kind of judge what what really happened to the book in the long run but i i'm wondering if you can go into like the way back machine and kind of put yourself in in your your teenage shoes about what what you were thinking especially i mean it seemed like the first few issues romito was kind of being conservative and almost like he's even said he kind of was aping dicko to a degree but you know it it wasn't too long before the style of the book started to shift dramatically and i'm curious you as a fan what 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 you thought if you can recall that at all well i remember that my first my initial reaction was a shock obviously because <laughs> we had we had had uh by that point three or four years of of ditko on uh spider-man and the style of spider-man was so so tied to to ditko's uh storytelling and uh artistic approach that that when when Ramita came on the book, it, it felt like it was almost a completely new book, and it was it was a it was a strange shock. I, I, and the weird thing for me is that I start I had uh, read the book as as you said uh, from almost very near the the first issue. I think I picked started reading it with like issue six or seven, and I had just gotten a subscription to the book with about two issues or three issues before Ramita came on. 
So when he came on, I felt kind of betrayed (laughs) 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 that that my my uh, favorite book, you know, was suddenly now in the hands of somebody completely different who had a who, even though he was trying to ape Ditko, his style was so at variance with Ditko's style that it initially felt wrong, you know, now, that's not to say I didn't come to love it, you know, because I, <laughs> I did. Uh, and pretty quickly, I mean, it was the Mary Jane Watson reveal that that, that uh, got me to buy in completely to the Ramita version of uh, Spider-Man. But Spider-Man, for years, never quite felt, uh, I think for the first two years under Ramita, didn't feel like it was the same guy. Uh, that, that, that the figure work didn't feel like it was the same uh, Spider-Man. And it took a while for Ramita's approach to, uh, to really settle in for me as a, as a reader. I'm curious, that transition, how was that announced to the readers at the time? Was there any idea that the book would be changing artists or it just appeared and there was a new guy drawing it? I'm not sure whether it was mentioned in a, in a previous issues letter column that might have been uh, foreshadowed. But this was also, I think, around the time that some new books were coming out, uh, some new uh, changes were being made in other titles, you know, like Submariner was being added uh, to Tales to Astonish. Captain America was being added, uh, I think, to Tales of Suspense. So there was a sense that Things were changing at Marvel, you know, and and I, I, I'm not like as conservative a, a reader as fans are today, <laughs> you know, when they, they all hate any any change. But for, uh, when this this happened, I think, let's see, it would have been around 65 uh, when Ditko uh, left. So I would have been about 13, which is prime comic book reading age. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, and uh, I was very invested in those characters at that time. And uh, I think, I think it was just kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. You know, I mean, Romita was not known at that point as a, a Marvel artist, uh, even though I think he had filled in on a couple of books prior to that. But suddenly, you know, you had Romita on Spider-Man, you had, Marie Severn on uh, Doctor Strange. Dan Adkins, I think, did a Doctor Strange or two. Uh, so there was this real sense of the old guard is changing in ways that felt very uncomfortable to a to a you know a reader who was invested in that material. You were ready to jump right on Twitter and yell about it. Were <laughs> <laughs> I? I don't know. You know, I I, I don't. I, I wasn't happy. I, I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I was not happy, but. I did adapt to it. You know, I did, I did come around. As I say, when, when Mary Jane showed up, I, I, I bought in. And I figured, well, you know, there are compensations. <laughs> you know, there are compensations. Because <laughs> Ditko had never managed to do, uh, draw a, uh, you know, a, a, a beautiful female lead, even though I, I liked Betty Brandt. I ne- never thought that she was uh, uh, particularly beautiful or attractive. But... Gee whiz, you know, uh, Mary Jane and, and Gwen Stacy, uh, they were they were uh, certainly something for, you know, the, ad- the adolescent boy to, to start uh, responding to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, even before we get into like some of like the newer characters, I mean, you can you can kind of see with Romita just from even the old guard, so to speak, you know, the characters like Peter and Aunt May and Jonah, mm-hmm. like May May wasn't so I always thought she didn't look so skeletal and frail, like sure. he kind of uh, gave her a little, you know, she was a little more full bodied. I mean, of course, Peter, I mean, the face is rounder. Uh, he's more muscular. I, he's smiling yeah. more. I mean, the smiling, I think that's that to me probably would have been the biggest shock in real yeah. time yeah well it's it's it I, I, it was like a recasting you know it, it, it would be like today uh you know replacing toby mcguire with andrew garfield uh there was a sense of uh, you you've settled into one interpretation of the, of the character and then you have a a, a very different no, no less effective but you know just a different uh a different take but Stan's writing remained consistent. The plotting obviously changed because Ditko is uh, basically plotting the Spider-Man stories. 
and had a very intricate uh, storytelling style and intricate uh, plotting style that took John a while to uh, uh, to begin to settle into himself. John was eventually became a, a master storyteller and, and taught me a lot of what I knew about how to write Spider-Man. Initially, he and Stan were trying to, to uh, pick up the slack in, in, a, in ways that neither of them were particularly comfortable with, you know, because Ditko had been doing so much of it. Uh, I don't think Stan had plotted an issue of Spider-Man for like two years at that that point. (laughs) So, uh, you know, he he had to basically come in and and rediscover the characters and the relationships and the storylines that Ditko had uh, started to weave. And I'm not I'm not sure that that, you know, he uh, that either of them was really effective at that for at least about a year. Uh, so, you know, the book sounded the same, but it didn't look the same. And the pacing was and the storytelling was all very different. So it just it suddenly went from one kind of a book to another kind of book in a, in a way that we just as readers at that time weren't expecting. Right out of the gate, you got that two parter, which, you know, we had a couple of those in the Ditko run. But, you know, to really start the book off fresh and anew the pacing is almost immediate you know we've got Mm -hmm. this meaty story carried over two different issues yeah and tying up big plot threads that have been left dangling for a year and a half you know in a lot of cases i mean the whole resolution of the green goblin uh storyline the 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 arrival i mean peter graduating college you know and and meeting harry i mean all this stuff you know that that had been percolating uh, just coming to a head and then rushing forward. It's, uh, it was very different, <laughs> as I say. Yeah. Uh, but Marvel was exploding at that time in a lot of ways. I mean, that was also the period of, of Kirby just uh, uh, exploding with his storytelling in uh, Fantastic Four. Uh, and then all the additional stories that were, you know, additional series that were developing the other books, too. I, I got to ask you super quick with the Green Goblin thing. I mean, we we have and we've joked about it a lot, certainly in season one, you know, the different versions of history of who is the Green Goblin going to be? And it, it, this is what drove Dicko from the book. I mean, you 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 knew some of the key players here, certainly John and Stan. What what was kind of the version of history that you were told for that at the time? Well, I'm curious. I mean, it was settled history by the time I came came there. You know, I mean, there it was Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin. I think that was probably. Oh, I don't know if that was Ditko's intention, but it fit so easily into the storytelling that that uh, it, it it seemed like it was was the likely uh, intention. On the other hand, it's also possible that Ditko was going to go and do something similar to what had been done. You know, in other books where, you know, you pull the mask off and it's somebody you've never seen. You know? <laughs> yeah. It was sort of like, who was that? We don't know. You know, he was obviously not as important as we thought. Ditko's plotting was strange. You know, I mean, he had his own uh, peculiar approach to character and story. And sometimes I think he wanted to make a, a larger points than... Uh, Stan was interested in making. You mentioned that Ditko's plotting is strange, and you can almost feel, I don't know if the relief of that when this book, like you said, kind of relaunches with this run. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned Harry Osborn, but, you know, you see a character like Harry Osborn who was very, you know, antagonistic and kind of negative alongside Gwen towards Peter under the Ditko era. But as soon as this book changes artists, You've got these characters who almost literally say in the text, like, let's be friendly now. And they all kind of change. Do you think that is the influence of um, Ramita's pencils kind of being friendlier? Or is it something Stanley kind of you feel like he always wanted to move that direction and finally had the real opportunity to plot something and really take over? Well, I think uh, you have the difference between – Ditko and uh, I mean one big difference between Ditko and, and Ramita is that Ditko is fundamentally antisocial, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, uh, Ramita is fundamentally social. I mean both of them you know as individuals just as as people. Uh, Ditko 
you know, prefers to sit alone in isolation and uh, create his work by himself, for himself, with no input from other people. John Romita sat in the middle of the bullpen, drawing with people all around him, and, you know, would engage in conversation while he was drawing. Uh, so, you know, he it's just totally different personalities. Uh, Stan always, I think Stan had, had what I consider the, uh, the TV star problem, uh, which is there's a, there's a tendency of, of characters who play unlikable characters, actors who play unlikable characters on television. As those series progress, they start pushing to make their characters more likable because they are becoming more and more associated with those characters and they want those characters uh, to be likable because they want to be liked. Uh, you know, it's the hot, the hot lips Houlihan transition in uh, MASH. Originally, she was portrayed as a complete negative character, and by the end of the series, she's one of the guys because the actress really didn't want to continue doing the character as a, as a complete negative character. Uh, and over time, you know, she had the ability to influence that. Stan wants to be liked. You know, that's his primary, that's his, if anything motivates Stan in life, <laughs> if he, he wants to be liked. And so when he's writing characters, it's it, eventually he starts making those characters more and more likable. You know, he, it, it's, I think it was his influence that started to make Victor Von Doom a more sympathetic character. Uh, it's his, it's his influence that, made Dr. Octopus a more sympathetic character. And to the extent that he can, that his influence, you know, and John's basic sociability, you know, come, come together, you know, you have that, uh, that tendency, you know, getting to be more and more part of the, uh, the approach of the book. So to the point where you basically don't have any characters who are unlikable at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, by the time Stan left the book, there were no bad guys left among Peter's friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, even a character like Jonah, I mean, Jonah is absolutely odious in the Dicko Lee yeah. run. And, and here, I mean, I think this is where the character becomes what J.K. Simmons ultimately did with the character in the Raimi movies. I mean, like, yeah, he's he's a jerk and a creep, but he's kind of a, a likable creep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he's our the, creep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that was sort of how Stan kind of mollified all those characters. Uh, he, he just, as I say, Stan wants to be liked, you know, so he, he had a hard time, I think, maintaining the, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a matter of empathy. I mean, Stan is, you know, feels very empathetic towards his characters and, and, uh, doesn't, doesn't want any of them to be perceived necessarily as a complete bad guy. Well, not, uh, not all of us can risk being criticized by killing a superhero's girlfriend. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and that was a very telling, too. His response to that was to want to have the uh, have it all go away once he started getting criticism. <laughs> <So> <laughs> me, I was willing to embrace the, the, the negativity, but, uh, you know, it is it's different personalities and how different people respond to uh to, to uh, what makes a character likable or dislike, uh, unlikable. I've just found that understand, and with John, you know, the, the book became a bit more, I don't know, a, a little less edgy, you know, than, than it was under Ditko. Do you think John has similar sensibilities to Stan, or is just kind of how his style is? I think it's I think it's mostly his style. He'll he also is is perfectly willing to do drama and to do negative characters. I mean, he he is not unwilling to do that. But because he has this kind of uh easygoing style in in uh his work, you know, this kind of generally friendly look to to his art, that can give Stan the opportunity to write a more lighthearted book and a more lighthearted uh, set of characters around Peter than he would have been able to do with Ditko. Kind of bridging off that, I, I think Dan and we should we should talk to Jerry about the ladies of 
the Ramita Lee run, right? Sure. <laughs> Nothing like three guys ladies. talking about ladies. Comic book ladies. Well, you know, we, 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 are, we are dealing with the murderer of one of these ladies. So uh, <laughs> we, should, we, should, we should talk. No, um, so obviously, I mean, we talked about like some of the existing characters and, and, and kind of the changes going through there. I mean, obviously the introduction of, of Mary Jane uh, Watson to the cast was was a big shakeup for the book. I mean, here's this character showing up, looks like Anne Margaret. Uh, I mean, like this crazy to have that into the book. And then, you know, I always like Ramita tells this story about how after introducing MJ, Stan started to needle him about, oh, you got to make Gwen prettier now, too. <laughs> so, like, you know, <laughs> Gwen gets the hair band and is a little, you know, is less of the ice queen that she was during the um, the Dicko run. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I know that you, I think when we had you on the first time, when, when uh, you were talking about, you know, the, the, the death of Gwen and kind of what led to that. I mean, you were kind of joking when, when MJ was first introduced in the book as a fan, you were thinking, well, this is the girl for Peter, right? I mean, it just seemed obvious. And then that never happened. (laughs) Yeah, it was a, it was, I think a failed opportunity, but, but again, given, given Stan's own predilections, it's not, not unsurprising. I mean, Gwen actually was almost, uh, Stan's dream woman, you know, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, she she even looked a little bit like Joan uh, Lee, and uh, you know, tall, statuesque, blonde. <laughs> That's basically Stan. <laughs> Stan, that was Stan's go-to. <laughs> and I, I think he sort of lost a bit of the uh, lost the plot a bit, you know, in in that regard, and became less ab- about creating the, the necessary uh, interest and conflict in Peter's life. And more about fulfilling Stan's own preferences and, and uh, his own fantasies. You know, I mean, it is interesting that 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 the way that that Ditko obviously perceived Peter was as an outcast who would never be accepted by society and was always going to be put down by everybody around him and was always going to be beaten up by life. And Stan, while he certainly saw Peter as uh, someone with problems, I don't think he fundamentally saw that Peter would be beaten up by life to the degree that, that uh, uh, Ditko did. So once Ditko was out of the way, Stan started to, to perform his own wish fulfillment through Peter. <laughs> you yeah. know, where Peter, Peter start, Peter's life started to come together in a lot of ways, which yeah. while that's great for, for wish fulfillment, it's uh, it does turn Peter into a bit of a Mary Sue. And, you know, like, where's the interest in that? You know, you want a character who's who's being challenged by by life. Uh, and I think John would have, uh, John embraced that. You know, I mean, when we worked together, he was perfectly happy to put Peter through hell. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was fine with him. He saw it as a storytelling, uh, you know, storytelling. But Stan just didn't push it in that direction. You know, the hardest he would get would be to have people that Peter cared about get in trouble. Uh, you know, Harry Osborne could get have a drug problem. Uh, Aunt May could, you know, be in danger. Peter could be racked with guilt, you know, over not being able to save, you know, the father of his girlfriend. But Peter himself was, you know, not in emotional jeopardy that much during uh, Stan's uh, run with John. He was certainly less neurotic, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel um, like that might contribute to why there are less hugely heralded issues during this run than, say, during the Dicko run? I mean, yeah. we've got, like, Spider-Man No More, but, you know, you go long stretches where, you know, people love these issues, but they're not holding it up as an all-time great. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely true. I mean... This is where the the weakness of Stan's plotting, you know, is is most readily apparent. I mean, Stan is is a phenomenal writer of dialogue and uh, really understands how to how to create interesting characters. But when it comes to creating tension and plot, he really doesn't have a lot of lot of lot in his, his toolbox. And 
you add that, uh, there's also really no compelling villain that comes out of that period. Uh, you know, the Prowler is okay, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the Kingpin is probably the most interesting villain that came out of that, that period. And uh, the Kingpin really came into his own uh, when he went, when it became a character in Daredevil. Up to that point, you know, he was more of a, uh, you know, just a, a crime lord who looked like Sidney Greenstreet. You know, right. that, that I think had more to do with uh, with uh, John's visual sense than than anything else. But you had a, a string of really mediocre uh, villains uh, under Stan and, and John, not uh, mostly because Stan, you know, w- without without Ditko couldn't really break out of some bad habits, you know, <laughs> of like wanting to name characters that are, you know, fairly simple, you know, like, like characters like the shocker, for example. I mean, right. you can't, there, there were all the characters who now sh- show up in the, in that remember that, uh, uh, series that they did, uh, uh, superior foes, superior foes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the guy, the second string villains who, you know, made made it made it uh, they made were making jokes out of and i think that's unfortunate because john clearly could invent good strong villains but he needed he needed stan to provide him with the uh uh the inspiration for them you know and with the as i say with the exception of the kingpin there wasn't a lot uh in the inspiration uh department from stan but you know you had characters like the kangaroo you know what <laughs> yeah um <laughs> It's sort of like he understood that you could do animals, but he didn't know which animals would be really frightening to do. I think the he, rhino was a good character, but yeah. that, that was probably about about it out of that batch. He needed that deck of cards that DeFalco and friends apparently use and talk about all the time, right, Dan? The the, the infamous animal cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> it's, it is uh, hard. It is hard to create villains. I mean, it's it's a tough tough thing to do so uh, i'm not saying stan you know is incapable of it but certainly i think ditko and uh, kirby had a better better sense of it than stan did well i mean putting aside some of these villains and even some of how the the look of some of these villains like the gibbon and um the shocker who kind of looks like a a plaid pillow or a sofa right <laughs> there um but was something that i thought that Romita was especially good at, and I'm just curious, like what your take is, especially having worked with him, uh, was costuming uh, mm-hmm. for his characters. He, he, he. I don't know. I mean, I think even more so than than Kirby did. I mean, he really had a sense of of modern fashion at the time. Or, oh, or yeah. am I, or am I just misinterpreting? Oh, modern fashion? Yeah. yeah. No, he absolutely did. I mean, it, his books looked like they li- that the characters lived in the real world. I mean, it was a glamorous real world. But, it, it, you know, he was taking from uh, the fashion magazines of the era, the, the, the pop, uh, pop uh, styles of popular culture. Uh, the books really, they reflected the heightened reality that comics should reflect, you know, of, of what's going on. I don't think Kirby had much of a sense of how people dressed you know, in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, but, jo- but John definitely did. And he, he also had a good sense of, what the real world could look like in a comic book, you know, in, this, in a similar way to, that Kirby did, uh, uh, not Kirby, uh, uh, Ditko did. Ditko's New York looked like uh, a very gritty version of New York, but John's New York looked like the Madison Avenue version of New York that uh, was also a, 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 a real part of New York. Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt like Ditko's was kind of more, it was an older New York. It's kind of like if you watch the mm-hmm. show Mad Men and how it was in the first season versus how it is towards, you know, like yes. that's Ditko. And then by the end of the 60s, there's Ramita's version yes. of, of New York and Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think the only other artists around that time that really was kind of nailing that was Steranko maybe mm-hmm. um, in, in, in Fury. But um, it just, it just kind of strikes me because it's, it's, it's something I don't even know if artists today consistently nail in terms of that sense of what, what do people actually look like in real life? You know, and, and it's just kind of an, an amazing attention to detail that I don't know Ramita gets enough credit for sometimes. 
Well, a lot of art, a lot of superhero artists aren't really interested in in referencing the real world. They're more interested in referencing uh, movies or uh, other superhero artists. <laughs> so, so you, you, uh, John came out of a, a commercial art background and an and a interest in uh, uh, newspaper strips, which were much more uh, concerned with, with depicting the real world than comics. Uh, his, his heroes were people like Martin... K, uh, Martin uh, oh, God. I'm, I'm blanking on the artists who did... Uh, Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking you about. You know I'm talking about. This yeah, is uh, a, a senior moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but that was his reference points. He he loved those people like people like uh, uh, who uh, the, the, there were newspaper strips like Big Ben Bolt that he was a big fan of, and uh, Rip uh, Rip Kirby the newspaper strip. Uh, so those are his reference points, and and th- that requires you to, to to want to be an illustrator as much as wanting to be a cartoonist and artists today don't really spend any time developing that part of the, the craft you know you sort of have to go to to artists from europe uh to to really find that you know that's why uh, you know people people who do do it well are some of the artists on spider-man right now like giancarlo uh he did it really well yeah you know, where he but when you start going for the guys who are basically trying to draw a superhero and their primary emphasis is on the superhero aspects of the story, they, they do tend to lack that, that uh, attention to real-world details that sell the book you know, on, a, on, a, on a different level. So you worked with a lot of artists over the years. What was your working relationship like with Ramita? Like, what was it like crafting a story alongside him? Well, I was very much the student with the master. You know, uh, when I when I came on that book, I was uh, relatively new to Marvel. I think I'd been working there for about a year and a half on uh, on regular titles, and uh, it was made clear to me that I was the junior partner. My name came second uh, after John's, which was like I think the only time uh, that an artist's name came first, and it was really to reflect the fact that John was the primary crafter of the stories that we did together. He, he, he and I would talk over uh, a story. I would have an idea and a plot that I would want to, uh, to do. You know, I, I, you know, like a character like Hammerhead, I, you know, I wanted to do a gang war story. Uh, and so we would talk over that, and I'd come up with the, the Hammerhead idea. And then John would basically structure the story and, you know, show me how to, tell this story uh, in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do if I had been left my own devices. Because if you look at the work that I had been doing for the year, year and a half uh, before I went on to Spider-Man, it was kind of, kind of uh, chaotic, you know, in, in terms of my handling of subplots and uh, sometimes leaving subplots dangling that never got picked up, you know, not necessarily... Uh, effectively setting things up that were going to pay off later. John really taught me a lot about how to do that uh, and how to pace a story internally so that you didn't end up with, you know, everything happening on the last two pages, which was a problem I'd sometimes have, you know, working with other artists. Uh, So uh, he was a master storyteller and uh, definitely brought me along. Do you feel that, you know, it's interesting, a lot of your stories, and certainly like the, the street-level elements seem to borrow from, you know, elements from the, from the Dick Lee run. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, you're, you're learning from, from John here in terms of storytelling. I mean, in terms of like your, your creative ideas, do you feel like one run influenced you more than the other? I mean, it was, was the immediacy yeah. of John kind of, did that tilt you in one direction or the other? Like how, how did that go I for was, you? I, I, my goal was to do, do the kind of stories that I, I loved when I was first reading Spider-Man. So I, I definitely was more influenced by Ditko. I, to, to be honest, I was not a big f- fan of the uh, the Lee Romita era before I started uh, working at Marvel uh, in 70, uh, 69, 70. 
So I had sort of dropped off the radar on those books for a number of years. And I picked up on them again, you know, when I came back to Marvel. Uh, I mean, when I came to Marvel as a, as a writer in, in late 69, I started reading the material again and became a fan of it. But I wasn't, like, passionate about, oh, I've got to do a, do a run that's similar to the, to, to, uh, the, Empire, the Empire University run. You know, it's like that wasn't yeah, something yeah. that was, like, in my head. I wanted to do a new Crime Master run. I wanted to do a new Master Planner run. I wanted to do stories, you know, about Aunt May, you know, on, on her deathbed. You know, <laughs> I wanted to bring back Dr. Octopus and really make him a threat. Uh, you know, where he was not uh, somebody who uh, was kind of cuddly and and, uh, and and unmenacing. I wanted him to be a, a monster. So that's that was where I was coming from. And as I say, John was perfectly uh, okay with doing that. That was, you know, part of his... Uh, uh, it, it's just a matter of he wanted to have the material... He responded to whatever material he was being asked to deliver, you know, um, and uh, if you wanted to go into uh, a slightly darker uh, st- storytelling mode, he was fine with that. Uh, he was he was uh, he was a great collaborator. When you had your second go around with the character in the 80s with Spectacular and Web of, I mean, did that what did your kind of influences change a little bit for that or were you still kind of going for the same thing? Well, I, I think by that point, the character had moved along in his development to such a degree that, that I couldn't really go right back to the same types of stories I had been doing before. But my, inf- my, my desire when I came into doing the, uh, the book in the, in the late 80s was to, to find a way to tell stories about the supporting cast characters because the main title, the Amazing Spider-Man title, was going to be focused on, you know, Peter and, and Mary Jane. So, in effect, I was forced to come up with a, a different approach, you know, entirely different approach than I would have done if I'd been writing the main book. So I can't really say it's, it, that those those stories represent my, my preferred approach to writing Spider-Man. They were sort of like, you know, like a, a side trip, you know. Yeah. Like, you were kind of you were kind of put in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I my my job on those books was to deliver stories that were entertaining that wouldn't necessarily change Peter's life. You know? no. So uh, I could change Joe Robertson's life, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> and you did, <laughs> yeah. and that that was fun for me, you know, and and I think for the readers. So we, and it was also fun to 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 have an opportunity to create new villains and new characters that. Uh, you know, it could be uh, separate from the, the main title because the main title would have the, the, the big characters, you know, the big villains. You know, something that I've always found interesting, just kind of like charting Spider-Man through the years. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Dicko and Lee, they they established so much that, you know, the Dick, Dicko is kind of considered the innovator, but obviously Ramita changed the tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, so when you're looking at what people are doing, today or you know in the last 15 20 years or so it seems like when someone is trying to go epic they're they're kind of culling from Ditko. but when there's when there are these stories that are more looking for nostalgia and sentimentality like a spider-man blue or even elements of of ultimate spider-man in the early going i feel like it's very heavily influenced by the remita lee work i mean yep. it's even though it's not as like you said, those individual stories aren't as memorable, but it's it's just the 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 the, the aesthetic and the aura of it, right? It's just mm-hmm. it just kind of screams nostalgia. Absolutely, and also the the other aspect is is that when Ramita took the book over, that's when the sales really took off. Uh, Spider Man was a successful book with with Ditko, but it became the most successful book with Ramita. So a lot of people, uh, a lot more people read Romita's Spider-Man than read Ditko's Spider-Man, which sometimes people miss, you know, because you think, oh, Spider-Man has always been Marvel's number one character. He really wasn't until until Romita. Uh, he was definitely a popular character, but he wasn't the best-selling book. And there's like this trend line uh, where uh, the Fantastic Four was the most 
popular book for many, many years. And right around the time that Romita came onto Spider-Man, that trend line started to change, you know, where the, the Fantastic Four sort of go, started going into a slump around the time that, that Kirby became disaffected, uh, you know, where you, you started seeing the same basic three stories every year. And, <laughs> and, and uh, at that same period, that's when the Romita uh, Spider-Man started to increase in sales and became the book that, that started to drive Marvel uh, into the mainstream. So uh, the nostalgia for the Ramita era is genuine because that's, that's the book that most people uh, ended up reading. You know, that's the version of, of Peter Parker that most people have in their head. And probably the most iconic, I mean, even though the, I think the most iconic sequence in Spider-Man is uh, from the Master Planner, uh, a story where where Peter is under the where Spider Man is under the piles of rubble, you know, and he and he pushes his way up, you know, uh, and throws it off uh, because of his his determination to save his save his aunt. That's probably the most iconic physical triumphant moment of Spider Man. But the most iconic image of Spider Man is the Spider Man No More cover, you know, where where Peter's walking away from uh, the Spider-Man costume in the trash can. There's really no more iconic image that sells that uh, internal despair, you know, that, that, uh, that I can't ever make it, you know, kind, kind of image of Peter Parker uh, than that cover. So, Where do you think before. that idea came from? Because it does seem, you know, as an issue, it really stands out from that run for being the one place that really dared to do something dramatic with Peter, even if it only was for like five to 10 pages. You yeah. Know, wh- where do you think that thought came from? I think it came from John because just John was the one who came up with the idea to kill off a main character in my run. You know, I mean, he, he was the one who said, you know, we have to, we have to change things up. We have to make, give, uh, give the reader something to, uh, to shock them, you know, and to, to make them feel like things uh, matter in the book. So that was his impulse. And I think whatever big iconic moments came during the, the Lee uh, Ramita era of Spider-Man were probably inspired by John saying something similar to, to Stan. Uh, and he probably had that vis- visual in his head. You know, he probably thought to himself, gee, that would be a great visual. You know, I, I could make a great cover out of that. John was really good at, at cover design. So, you know, he may have had that idea as a cover image in his head and pitched it to Stan, and then they built a story around it. That would be kind of my idea, my guess. Because Stan also, just like with Ditko, eventually came to lean on John for storytelling. So, uh, you know, that would be a, a really good example of, uh, of, a, of a kind of story beat that John would, would propose. But I think that story really seems to work in that context, again, because of kind of the, the what John and Stan had kind of built up in the issues preceding in, in terms mm-hmm. of the tone and, and the aesthetic, because it's, you know, we're dealing with like Peter had, quote unquote, quit Spider-Man before during like, even the Dicko run. Sure. And yet... You know, here, like a few issues earlier, he's he's meeting, you know, he meets Mary Jane. He's being more social. He's, ha- you know, Harry and Flash are being nice to him now. And it's like, you know, like the whole premise of that issue is this idea of, well, you know, I'm, I'm, ti- I'm tired of getting kicked around as both Spider-Man and Peter. I'm just going to be Peter. And you kind of almost you almost kind of root for it as a reader. I feel like, I don't know if, if you rooted for it. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you were still recovering from the shock of it all at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was a great issue. I mean, I, I, obviously I, I remembered it pretty vividly, you know, and I, I wanted to do something similar myself at some point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you did feel like this is a guy who's been put upon uh, and he has to make a choice. And as you say, since he was getting along with people, uh, in his, in, as Peter Parker, giving up Spider-Man might have made, you know, would have made emotional sense for him. You know, it's like I can have I can have one life where I can have where people can kind of like me or I can give up this other life where I'm doing all this work and getting no getting no uh, 
no rewards for it. So, yeah, makes sense. Well, thank thank you so much, Sherry, for for coming on and sharing again. You know your experiences with John, and also you know as as a collaborator, as as a reader, as a fan, as as a uh, esteemed industry veteran and critic. I mean, but it's it's just a great a great perspective. All these perspectives to, just to kind of get in there and, and kind of kick off this season where we talk about all these issues. So again, we really appreciate it. Well, great. It's a it's a it's a really interesting era. So I I, I think you guys will have a lot of fun going forward. So thanks for joining us for our first episode of our second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, our next episode will be out in two weeks uh, on February 21st. What's the title of that show? Yeah, it's going to be called The Parker Luck. And we'll be exploring the Peter Parker, Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane love triangle that I, I, I don't know if you agree with this, Mark, but it kind of never really was. Yeah, and Jerry even alluded to that in his interview with us. So, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of accepted. But but people say it's a love triangle, so we're going to say it's a love triangle for the purpose of our show. Yeah, and we could all be as unlucky as Peter Parker in that scenario. But if you ever wanted to throw down over whether MJ or Gwen was right for Peter, this will be the episode for you. You know, heck, you guys should send us a mail at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com and let us know. Are you a Gwen or a Mary Jane kind of person? Yeah, is there some kind of like clever uh, mishmash of names that we can? Uh, are you are you Meter or Gweeter? <laughs> I hate that. I don't. I don't like that at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, also, uh, why don't you tell everybody about what we're doing on Patreon this week? Yeah, we, we got a couple of things coming down the pipeline there. Um, you know, Patreon subscribers, of course, if you subscribe to us, uh, you will get uh, additional exclusive content in your podcast feed. Uh, first up is going to be a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 794. Um, but also, we we kind of got a little uh, post-interview chit-chat with Jerry Conway uh, so uh, about Renew Your Vows and, and his run on that book uh, that kind of ended unexpectedly uh, a few months ago. So if you want to hear about uh, Jerry Conway and, and Renew Your Vows and what exactly happened there, I, I recommend you, you join up on Patreon, which you can do uh, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, and get access to all this exclusive content like new issue reviews, Swarm B-books, uh, mailbags, and these little interviews. And um, for an extra bonus for $10 or more a month, You'll get uh, access to commissioned artwork, uh, so you'll be supporting the continuation of the show and great artists. I mean, what's better than that, Dan? Yeah, nothing. We love all of our Patreon supporters, and we'd love to have everybody join the club. So if you want to join, just go over to either of our websites. You can click on the button that reads Friendly Neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club, or you can go to patreon.com slash superior spider talk and sign up and join us on the web. Speaking of the web, Mark, where can we find you on the old web? Yeah, well, of course, you can find me on superiorspidertalk.com doing uh, new review ish. Uh, articles among other things uh and you can find me uh at chasing asm blog on the twitter and of course my book dan uh it's an evergreen i'm told uh you can still buy it 100 things spider-man fans should know and do before they die from triumph books uh find it wherever books are sold dan where can we find your stuff well, I'll be reading your book again and uh, posting about it on Twitter at at sup spider talk. And I'm also, uh, you know, on my website, superiorspidertalk.com. You know, Mark, you and I tag team these reviews. So you'll see some of my stuff there every now and again. And you can follow my personal Twitter account if you're so inclined to do so to see all the other stuff I'm doing. It's at Dan Gavazdin. Um, You know, but Mark, we talked a lot. Jerry talked a lot. And it may not have been Uncle Ben who originally taught us Spider-Man's immortal lesson, but Stan Lee himself. What were those immortal words that he said that would reverberate throughout history? 
I believe, Dan, he said, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk.